Hi everybody, this is Pete Worrell, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Positive Enterprise Value. Positive Enterprise Value can be found on our Bigelow website, which is bigelowllc.com, or in iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Here, we freely share immediately useful information for high-performing entrepreneur owner-managers who want to build their enterprise value of their organizations, and perhaps someday capture it in the form of a capital gain. For 30 years, I've had the fun of meeting with thousands of entrepreneur owner managers and working with hundreds. I've learned that successfully striving for achievement and ultimately fulfillment leaves quite noticeable clues, breadcrumbs in the forest that we can follow. So deconstructing the behavior of these high-performing EOMs lets all of us learn a lot about their peak performance and possibly optimal experience. That's why in this series of podcasts, I interview these seasoned successful entrepreneurs and share with you their points of view from their niche domains in both the for-profit and not-for-profit areas. Today, I have the fun of uh, interviewing uh, and sharing with you my uh, interview with Mark Taylor. Mark is uh, the executive chairman of Reading Plus, which is a uh, technology-enabled education services business that uh, provides um, cognitive, physical, and emotional views on reading skill building uh, for K through 12 students uh, across the world. You'll be able to hear in the background there's some activity going on because Mark and I uh, had our interview uh, at the location of the Basin Harbor Resort in Virgennes, Vermont, where we were sitting outside on a beautiful patio overlooking Lake Champlain. It didn't bother us that families and kids were uh, running by and you could hear the clink of uh, tableware in the background. I hope it doesn't bother you either. Mark is a particularly interesting uh, entrepreneur, owner, manager. I think for all of us who are business owners to, to listen to and think through, he's, in my view, uh, an artist, a creator, a founder. Uh, he was able to bring to um, Reading Plus really a worldview perspective of uh, the creativity and, shall I say, even art that uh, those of us who are business owners long for and strive for, but don't always achieve. You'll hear in our interview, Mark is a uh, trained architect from Cornell, but he also has a graduate degree in philosophy. And I think that uh, unique combination is uh, evidenced throughout our interview. Mark and I uh, talk about uh, topics as uh, widely ranging as um, the intersection of uh, entrepreneurship and architecture, the um, bringing of art into the organizational realm, the challenge of building a collaborative, unique team, along with the constant tension of, in Mark's case, knowing that he had another chapter that he wanted to get to and that this chapter, while a great one, was ultimately going to be one that he was going to draw to conclusion in his thoughts about doing that. Mark and my interview, as I mentioned, was recorded on uh, July 18th, 2019, outside at the uh, Basin Harbor uh, Resort. And uh, I hope you won't mind the little bit of background noise because boy, oh boy, is this content ever worth it. Here's Mark. So um, here we are on the shores of Lake Champlain at the uh, Basin Harbor Club in uh, Virgins, Vermont. Mark, I want to thank you so much for being with me with uh, Positive Enterprise Value today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Pete. Uh, 
Mark, as we get started, I wonder, you know, many people probably know you uh, as a successful entrepreneur and a business owner, a CEO, uh, a, th- a thought leader in your field. But if you were going to describe uh, to someone who didn't know you, or even to someone, maybe uh, kids, your kids maybe even, if you describe with a couple of nouns like, this is what I do professionally, what would be a couple of words that you would use? I think the first word is, is certainly design, designer, maker. Um, I see myself as a puzzle maker. Um, a puzzle maker. puzzle maker? A puzzle maker or a puzzle solver? Well, a little bit of both. Um, okay. I think to have an interesting puzzle, you need interesting ingredients, if you will. You yes. need something that is, is worthy of solving. And um, I tend to put together the pieces in a way that allows others to help construct something that's bigger than any of us. So I, I like to um, kind of create the context for a puzzle to come together. Oh, I love that. Is that, uh, is that what you thought you were going to do when you were a kid? Not at all. What did you think you were going to do? Well, I mean, I saw myself as an architect from a young age. Um, really? I, I yeah. very much resonated with how space and design influenced people and affected people. Um, for better and for worse, and had a very altruistic intent of, wow, if, if we can really shape space and environments in a way that influence people, what, what positive kind of effects could we have from that? So from a very early age, saw myself as an architect, and yeah, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of left turns that, that uh, happened along the way. And, and when you saw yourself as an architect, a designer, um, is that because you were surrounded by that as a child? Were your parents uh, designers, architects? No, my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, my mom actually worked with him for years. Um, but my dad's business and what he had focused on and how I understood business as a young person was not something that I wanted to take part in. Okay. I saw myself much more philosophically oriented and uh, much more close to the arts. And it's so interesting you say that I, I, because I, um, b- because my world uh, transcends sort of industry domains. I see many different industries and fields, and I do find that in young people sometimes there's a dichotomy, a false one, I think, between you know uh, mission and meaning, and uh, enterprise or entrepreneurship, right? And and they can do both, right? And so you discovered that along the way. I think I'd, I'd say I discovered that within the last six years. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I very reluctantly um, stepped into the business, really seeing myself as a product person um, at a time where the company was falling apart. So, so did you come into the business like in the breach to solve a problem? I did. And, and tell me about that. Yeah, so my dad and grandfather and great uncles were brilliant engineers and passionate about education and specifically about the role that the eyes play in the process of reading, how we move our eyes and how that uh, allows us to take information in in a way that steps beyond the conventional way of teaching reading, which is typically um, understood as a cognitive act, something that we we learn comprehension skills, we learn vocabulary, and we put it all together. Um, 
So they had been involved with that for years. My dad had created um, multiple projective devices, kind of 70s, 80s devices, made a very awkward translation into software. Yes. And the company was rapidly deteriorating. Um, so by around 2002, three, um, we were, my dad was basically just keeping the, the company alive, very small team, um, still a loyal sales force, but, uh, and, and with really a great pedagogical kernel, but uh, the product itself was, was a shambles. And so I, I came in to answer your question just for thinking it would be a couple years of putting a coherent technology framework around what we were doing and, and increasing the usability of what we were doing. And um, yeah, things just evolved from there. <laughs> and so uh, when you came in in the breach to sort of, it sounds like to really sort of help your dad, um, were you thinking that it was a temporary assignment? I was, yeah. And we, because if I got this right, you were an architect, and so you'd already been practicing. I was an architect. I practiced for a while, um, moved out to the Bay Area, and this was the time where CD-ROMs were the rage at that yeah. point in time. Yeah. And so I started, uh, I got involved with 3D modeling and animation and started art directing teams producing CD-ROM products and doing some television animation. So I was stepping more into a, a commercial side of design that had to do with digital mediums and putting teams together and, um, and struggled with that. Stepped in and out of my, my love for business, my love for getting things done and the energy and the power that came behind it. Yes. And a desire to be rooted in something that was more purposeful. Yes, yes. So, um, so if I've got the story right, and I may not, um, when you graduated from college, yes, you had an architecture degree. Correct. You practiced for a while. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds as if, uh, I mentioned last night that I thought you were very intentional and during the time that I've known you. It sounds as if even in those stages, you were sort of intentionally turning the wheel to a different course from time to time, exploring some things. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Yeah, really looking for a way to bring a deeper sense of meaning to what we make and what the value is beyond any commercial value. Um, and that was tough in, in software. Um, you know, there, I, I wasn't doing a lot of mission-driven work. I felt the emptiness. I went back to grad school for a while. Yeah. What did you study? Philosophy. Yep. Yeah. So, um, and, and really, it, I looked at, from an art history perspective, at the, the history of making of why we make what we make and what it represents and um, a tradition of the use of geometry that, that was rooted in a broad cosmology that I'd missed when I was in undergrad. And thought, you know, it's not just something I feel about design that it can have purpose and meaning, but that there was a time where that was the entire intent of design was yes. to kind of convey our values yeah. through the artifacts that we make. I wonder, have you ever revisited with your, your undergrad um, uh, the people who were directing the curriculum at your undergrad, it was Cornell, right? Yes. In the architecture school. And it's wonder because the things you're describing to me as a layperson seems so attractive yeah. to have together in someone that I would like to work with as an architect. It yeah. would seem like they would almost get that, what you're talking about. Do they? I, well, I, I don't think they did. I clearly came out of undergrad without a, a deep sense of the history. I mean, it was... Even though it was the 80s, it was a very modernist training. It right. was not a postmodern. Uh, postmodernism was a dirty word at Cornell, at least at that time. Yeah. Um, so it was really building on the, 
the backs of what the modernists had done in the 20th century, and um, and that was really to deconstruct the history of architecture in a way I think almost purely to its form, without carrying forward any of the cosmology, because post Enlightenment that meaningfulness of cosmology of geometry was kind of stripped away. Yes. And geometry became an instrumental discipline to kind of organize space and organize people. Um, and there's a very egalitarian side, but it, it missed the kind of juice that I found really interesting. And obviously it's a question about how we make today, what's appropriate today yes. to make it. Yeah. We're not just reiterating what happened in the past, but um, kind of reinterpreting it in an appropriate way. Yeah, I'm, I uh, when I travel around different parts of the world and I see uh, some of the magnificent architecture, uh, whether it's in Europe or uh, even America, uh, I yearn for uh, the times where, and I sort of ask myself, why can't we do that today? Either in the private sector or in the public model, candidly. When you look at some beautiful, beautiful, even just a... 150-year-old, you know, uh, pieces of public architecture and think, yeah. wow, that was fabulous. Who had the vision to do this and how were they able to carry it out? And, and we're not seeing that today yet, are we? Not so much, yeah. yeah. And also the level of craft. Yes. You know, as architecture is really the synthesis of the arts in a way. Um, yeah, there's definitely not the same level of, of craft today. So uh, when I think of um, architecture, Marco, I may have this wrong because I haven't been an architect, but I think of it more as a solo practitioner and yet in um, your business, Reading Plus, I'm guessing one of the big challenges was to build a multi-functioning uh, team mm -hmm. with uh, people who had uh, expertise or unique ability in different functional areas. H how did you find that move from you know being a solo designer, architect, artist to really being a... Um, orchestra conductor. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it was rather easy because I had no background in education. <laughs> and so when I was guiding an educational company, yes. so right out of the gate, I knew I was not the expert to bring that. I didn't have a biography that pointed towards literacy or, uh, of course, I've always valued education, but it's it's not my, my root. So I, I needed to assemble folks that had that expertise immediately. And then, and that's part of what put me in this place, as I said, of the kind of puzzle maker of bringing together pieces that these disparate folks and disciplines had, but hadn't really kind of wrestled with how they might kind of be combined. And I like to create that context and help work with them to kind of figure out how to put something together in a way that's, um, that's bigger than its parts. Yeah, many entrepreneurs, I think, who were listened to positive enterprise value would be nodding their heads that, yeah, getting a management team to work together as a team, that is one of the great puzzles. It is, right? yeah, right. <laughs> and like, what's the right level of friction that you want? Um, right. Because that's the most productive state is... Some creative tension. Exactly. So uh, you uh, have uh, had a team around you, uh, if... I'm describing it correctly. Some of them have been with you for 10 plus years. Oh, yeah. And some are relatively new members of the team. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking of Kelly, who's been with you for 10 plus years. Yeah. I'm thinking of how, um, at least as an outsider, I view the way that the two of you work together. Uh, uh, you are the CEO, she's the COO, and you work hand in hand, yet 
most people would say in order for the rest of the members of the company to be effective, they need to understand what your different roles are, yours and Kelly. How did you two manage that role clarity? I think uh, we found a natural synergy um, pretty early on. Um, I had begun to kind of build a vision for product. I credit Kelly with building a vision for culture. Um, and we always saw the necessity to, to see a, uh, a parallel track between what we were making and trying to do for kids in the world and how we would want to treat people and what kind of organizational culture would be appropriate. Right. Um, and so I really think I give Kelly a tremendous amount of credit for how she took a lot of the juice from product thinking and externalized that into staff and culture and helped us build something that made us feel very congruent very early on. Um, so I think, you know, often Kelly has said this too, that I would, I would lay out where we thought we were going and Kelly would make it bounce off the walls and Great. everybody living and breathing it. And, and it's, people in the firm must have realized those two different roles. They I sort think, of got that. I think so, yeah. definitely, yeah. You mentioned that you thought of Reading Plus as an education company, but again, just as I look at the business, I guess you could say it's an education company that's powered by technology. Some people might say it was a technology company that delivered education services. Yeah. I've how, do, how do you think that. about that? I definitely see it as an education company. You've it, resisted the other side. I have. Tell me about yeah. that. Um, you know, we had a, a, a time in our evolution where uh, some, particularly on the engineering team, wanted us to kind of re-identify ourselves as a technology company because there are certain efficiencies and affinities that those in technology want to have and be identified and associated with. I always saw the very purpose of what we were doing um, not rooted in technology, but rooted in a deep humanitarian effort to do something um, to help people through education and saw technology as an invaluable tool. We couldn't do what we do without technology. Um, some, some educational products actually can. They're just really delivering something electronically, digitally, more efficiently than they could with paper forms or other yes. forms. Yep. Um, but in our case, we actually are using technology in a different way. So it's, it's certainly part and parcel of what we do, but it's, it's the means. It's not the meaning. So uh, I think from our earliest conversations when Kate Payne introduced us, um, I always sensed in you that there was uh, a very long view and uh, the long view existed for the business, but it also existed for Mark and Chris. And I always had a sense that uh, this uh, tour of duty with Reading Plus, uh, possibly in your mind, had a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. So uh, help me understand that, uh, because you, you mentioned you came in to help your father in a difficult time. You yeah. thought it was temporary. And it turned out to be a little more than temporary. It did. It did. Yeah. Um, I think for years I held on to this idea. Um, you know, initially I thought I'd be involved for two to three years. And uh, I held on to that idea for probably seven years <laughs> and reached this point where um, I recognized that if I was to continue, I needed to throw myself into it. And this is a time where we moved a business from Long Island up to Vermont. And in the process of doing that, 
um, stopped telling myself that this was temporary and said, this is really, I I need to fully commit. I had resisted stepping beyond just my my product expertise role. Was there something that happened that that caused you to come awake on that point? um, I, I think the incongruity between how the office was set up and run Mm-hmm. in New York and some of the team that I'd be begun to build in Vermont became too big and I felt like I, I was having a vision for what I really wanted to create but not fully signing up for it and right. realized if I was to move forward I needed to fully take ownership and kind of commit. Was that scary? It was, yeah. It was a definitely a uh, turning point for me and I think a healthy one because as I look through my biography it's it's easier to not fully take ownership for what you can create and just to be the critic on the sidelines. Right. Um, and right. so I think that was a big growing up period for me. Yeah, kind of- I, I, I get that. And I think people listening will get that, that, you know, suddenly when you go to become what we call a principal, skin in the game. Yeah. Right. That you have all of the risk of loss. Yeah. And that doesn't mean just financial loss. I mean, that's your your persona, your your ego, your sense of uh, identity. Absolutely true. There's no one else to point to if it doesn't go well. <laughs> and so uh, do you feel like when you made that change, what year was that? Was that? 2009. So when you made that change in 2009, and did you fully move the business to Vermont at that point? We did, yeah. And did you take on a more financial risk at that point, in your view? Yes, we did. Um, I mean, in some ways, we were a very small organization. We had nine people at the time. Yep. Um, and we took on, um, we moved from a windowless warehouse in Long Island, New York, up to a beautiful building that we renovated third floor of an old mill in New England, outside, just outside of Burlington, Vermont. Um, and we built it out in a big way. And so we had nine people in a very empty space. Um, but at that point, a commitment to a product trajectory that I think um, captivated the imagination of a lot of folks when we were interviewing people and pulling them in and talking about what we wanted to do, uh, it became clear really quickly that the quality of that space, and that was part of my intent, was something that would attract people. Mm -hmm. That although we weren't fully at that form, we were acting as if and um, moving along that direction and things moved very rapidly after many years of not moving so rapidly. Oh yeah. So, So the move and maybe also the move in your approach seemed to give the business positive energy. did. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking about you and Chris and your family. And so at that time also, you must have had a couple of really young kids. We did. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You really picked a great time to put it all together there, Mark. It's got to all happen at once, right? For everyone. I think everyone has some phase in their life. So you and Chris had the Thelma and Louise moment where you just sort of like closed your eyes and said, we're going to do this? We're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. We did, and I didn't know how long it would be. Um, you know, Still. But, yeah, I, yeah. I, I was more invested at that point of really making something. We had made, you know, the, the company was now profitable. Um, we had a product that I was proud of, but didn't fully represent the ideals that I thought education needed to be considering and at this time. And so that was my real anchor is what will it take to bring us to this product that i'm really proud of that's really making an impact on students and helping educators in a way and i think i always knew that when i reached that point then there would probably be a next wave of growth in a business that i don't have the biography or the passion to kind of carry it for and did you uh have a measurement that you were looking at uh, or measurements where um pre-2009 um the metrics were certain 
whatever they were, X, Y, Z, and that you were looking for some appreciation in those metrics, either, you know, numbers of students whose lives you were positively impacting or numbers of sales you were making or... Did, did you look at those kinds of things, those outcomes? We did. We For a long time, you know, we started, we didn't have a measuring stick that I think was good enough. Um, we always had a yardstick largely rooted in the amount of use that we saw from different kids because we had done enough research to understand the association between getting to this many hours of use and the outcomes that would be measured. Um, so we got much more precise over time about how to measure that as impact, as meaningful impact that we could take to the bank and not just pat ourselves on the back and feel good about. Um, and that's been our guiding light and is our guiding light moving forward as far as the amount of true impact, not just touching kids or educators, but actually changing. You know, it's so interesting to me, Mark, and I know it will be to other business owners that um, I see some business owners who are... Uh, they kind of think in an infinite game. So they, they're, they're, uh, their time frame is infinite for, to own their business. Some of them, it's so infinite that they really can't imagine doing anything else. And, you know, they may be carried out feet first. Yeah. For others, uh, they do view it a teensy bit more as a finite game that they're trying to get to an achievement or a destination. And then they have in mind that they have other chapters that they want to pursue in their lives. Yeah. And you strike me as one of the latter. Yes. You always have. That's where I, I started out by saying when we first met, I even had that sense from you. Did you have a sense for kind of there were some things that you wanted to do next? I did. I, I think, you know, I think making that commitment helped me face constraint in a way as a designer that I, I ironically talked about for a yeah, while. Yeah but didn't really live through or grow up through. And um, I think, you know, I, I always felt I would move back to architecture or design in some capacity. And um, I think now I, I have much a deeper appreciation of um, really what it takes to produce meaningful change in the world and, um, and make things um, with all the constraints and all the bureaucracy that exists that it's a worthy challenge um, to not sit on the sidelines, but to take the risk and to put yourself out there and make something that, that stands up for something. So I, I, that's what I imagine I will get back to. I think how that takes form, uh, we'll see in a couple of years. So in 2009, when you committed or recommitted, uh, did you have a destination for the business in mind? Because here we are 10 years later. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have a timeline exactly. Okay. Um, uh, because I didn't, we had a very ambitious pedagogical goal. And I brought together a bunch of advisors um, who hadn't reconciled their own research with one another. Ah. So that was part of my challenge and didn't know how long that would take to really do the building and look at the numbers and try to move the bar um, was kind of a messy, messy endeavor, especially when you're doing school-based research. How do you describe your ambitious pedagogical goal? For me, it was about seeing education as more than developing skills or knowledge, um, but seeing education as something that embraced the whole individual. So this idea of head, heart, and hands has been a guiding principle in what we make in software and how we run the company and, and care for the people that we have within it. Um, so that had to do with looking at motivational and affective domains of students and what those measures meant in relation to more traditional cognitive measures. And uh, then specifically on the physical, there's this part of eye movement 
uh, retraining that we're involved with, that proficient readers, turns out, read their eyes, move their eyes very efficiently as they're reading. And so we were engaging um, the physicality of people's experience from reading. We were engaging their imagination through what they were reading, and we were ensuring their comprehension and the integrity of, of what they were reading. And so that full-bodied experience, I think, as a learner, is, is very often how people process and make sense of the world. And that was a starting point for what we wanted to put into our product and who we wanted to be as a company. So here we are. It, it happens to be, as you point out, 10 years later. That wasn't the goal, the 10 years. Right. But it is. Uh, how did... So, and. Um, People who hear this will know that Reading Plus has just come through a very successful recapitalization with Sterling Partners to continue to assure its ongoing success. How did you know it was the right time to do that? I think we had reached a culmination of some of the product ambitions that I had had. Right. Um, I feel that the, the next step was very clearly in sales and marketing. And we had outsourced much, we had remained in R&D shop for years and outsourced a lot of our, our sales efforts. And it was very clear that we needed to start to grow up in these other disciplines that, um, again, I had little passion or experience with. So uh, those initial steps were bringing in people to help, help us kind of grow up on those sides of the business. And then it became clear to me, wow, there's a, there's a lot to do here. And I'm not sure I'm the guy for this. So it felt very natural to me to start thinking about ensuring the integrity and the trajectory of what we were doing um, and that I'd, I'd play some role in that, but maybe not the key role as I had historically. And when you thought to yourself, and there are these things to do, and they're not necessarily in my unique ability, I'm not sure I'm the right guy to do this. Did you in your mind also think to yourself, but I know there are people to do this. I have to be able to access that talent. I did. I did um, believe that they were out there. And I think, you know, you asked me earlier about when do you come to this place of, of realizing um, that it can't just be you, that you yes. need other people and how do you bring them together? I think um, as an entrepreneur, I think every entrepreneur goes through a phase of doing everything yourself, um, just taking ownership for everything and rolling up your sleeves. And progressively, as I move forward, I was just struck by how many amazing people there are that can do things better than me when I step out of the way. Yeah, that's great. And allow other people and their zone of genius to kind yeah. of light up. So I was convinced they were out there. I had struggled with finding the right person yeah. and felt I needed some help. Yeah, my friend Dan Sullivan um, talks about how our education system, all, not just K through 12, but um, college and graduate school, is great at teaching us about the what the what to do. So it might be to be how, the what to do to be an architect or the what to do to be a business person. And he uh, talks about entrepreneurs who are able to make the change to realize it's not the what, it's the who. Hmm. And if you can choose the who, suddenly become, life becomes a lot more easy for hmm. us entrepreneurs. So we don't have to do it all ourselves. It's so true. Yeah. Hard to do though, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as you were building the business uh, over these the past years, and you had this young uh, family, and here you are in Vermont, were there necessary trade-offs that you felt you needed to make uh, family business trade-offs in order to have a successful business? Well, the beginning was crazy. I mean, I, my story is probably not that different than many who uh, are in the phase of working 16 hours a day, seven days a week for a while. And um, 
it, it took a while before I realized that's just not who I want to be with my family. There was a certain amount of foundational building of the business that needed to take place that seemed non-negotiable at the time. And when I came out of that um, sleepless haze um, and really looked at my, my kids who were getting older, um, I just chose not to be a dad that was endlessly uh, involved with the next deadline and the next project. Um, and that really broke down into finding people to kind of help break down the 16 jobs I was, I was doing. And um, that really opened up. It was very difficult to find people that you trust as much as yourself to begin with. And over time, I think through help with Kelly, it became a kind of passion to find great players that were reflections of ourselves and um, really helped us expand who we were. So it's it's sort of axiomatic that as you think about the team and building the organization, that organizations work best, right? When people sort of think, act, um, feel that they're almost empowered owners of the business. And uh, in a situation like Reading Plus, yet not all of them were owners of the business. What did you do that um, fueled their uh, motivation to believe and feel and act that way. Yeah, I think, you know, collaboration is one of our core values and it can be a, a flimsy term, um, but we really, really live and breathe that um, in that our management style, when we were involved with a project, again, I have a design background. So when we were struggling with the challenge of the business, there was no hierarchy in the way our meetings were run. Um, any person at any level, we really set up as a design charrette. And um, that ability for people to influence large choices, important choices for the company, that, that there was a place for people to take part, I think is, is what really keeps people engaged. I think ultimately that's the biggest motivation is to feel you're bringing a part of yourself and you're contributing to something that's meaningful. Um, so I, I'd say that's, that's one of the core values that, that led to that sense of ownership. In, in people's minds and hearts. Did you have uh, mentors to help you that? Did you have uh, people who you admired that you would aspire to uh, be more like in that way? You know, I, as I look back, I think I didn't do a good job of, of reaching out for mentors in a way that I wish I had. Um, I had a lot of great mentors through my education who I really um, looked up to and I feel like imprinted on me um, a worldview that uh, I, I carried forward. But I think when it comes to business, I, I felt myself as an imposter for a while, that how am I a CEO? How am I in this role? And uh, I think there was, if I'm candid, just insecurity in the early days. Sure. And so I worked very diligently to, um, to kind of pull things together. And over time, began to step into the confidence as I met with other business people, realizing I've, I've figured out a couple things along the way. Um, but I, I, in retrospect, I wish I had been um, larger in reaching out to people and finding mentors at an earlier age. I think I would have saved myself a lot of hard work and, and time, but maybe I needed those life lessons. <laughs> I think a lot of people who are listening will be nodding their heads, Mark, and, and thinking the same thing. I mean, it, it is very common, I find, that uh, entrepreneur, owner-managers like us uh, uh, see ourselves uh, as the weird kids in the room sometimes. Uh, sometimes also we're accidental entrepreneurs mm. more than more than you'd believe. Mm. I mean, some of us become entrepreneurs because 
uh, we desire to, but other people, you know, didn't get along in a big organization or got fired or had a desire to start something. And like you, uh, it's they're sort of finding their way along. Uh, and tough to do. Yeah. I think sometimes the there are some peer-to-peer organizations today which can provide some of that sustenance for us so that you don't have to feel so isolated alone. But many entrepreneurs do feel that way. Yeah, yeah. You, you know them. Yeah. <laughs> so um, here we are. Let's see. I think, is this the 18th, July 18th, 2019? So let's pretend tonight we go to sleep and magically tomorrow we wake up and it's July 20th, 2024 five years from today. And you say to me, Pete, remember that day five years ago when we did that podcast interview? I said, yeah. And you say, well, everything has gone so great, personally and professionally. And I say, great, tell me what happened. What happened, Mark? Wow, you're asking me the tough one, Pete. You know, I've, I've been, I read, before we first met, I read um, Enterprise Value over the weekend. I heard from Kate on Friday, hey, you should meet with this guy, Pete. Read the book over the weekend, called you Monday. Yeah. And the part of the book that I, I resisted or spent less energy on was you really need a plan for what happens post-event. <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I've, I've pushed that down the road. And I think the way I've made sense of that is that I have been so focused on bringing about and manifesting something that I've wanted in a way that I feel good about. And I'm very proud of how things have turned out with the business and for the staff and uh, the trajectory that I see for the business, um, that I need, I need the outbreath to kind of really make room for what the next step is. And I've got a lot of notions, but I'd, I'd be constructing something that isn't authentic if I were to take that shot. So I've, um, in everybody asks me what's going to be next. I've got friends who are taking bets on how long before I get involved with things. And truthfully, I've really um, tried to just sit in that awkward space of saying to people, I don't know. So I get it. But if you remember, we're not projecting the future. We are here on July 19th, 2024. Uh And we're looking back. Are, uh, Are you living in Vermont? I love Vermont. I, I think we uh, will always have some foothold in Vermont. I think um, traveling and exposing ourselves to other cultures is something that we're a little bit, after raising kids for so many years, where we have more of an appetite for um, extending out more than we have. Sure. And do you think, do you, can you see yourself uh, having been involved in entrepreneurial activity in some way? I can. Um, I think that's probably going to be the irony that bites me in, yeah. in a year or two. Yeah. Is that um, I do feel that now, having been involved with building a team and bringing something to the world, that in some capacity, that's appealing to me. Probably at a smaller scale. I think six or seven people feels nice. You know, you get up to <laughs> seventy, and it's a different situation. Right. So yeah, it's it's really ironic because. Uh, you know, I think the general public or the media sometimes thinks of entrepreneurs as someone starts something and they want to make money and they start it and that's what they do. And yet I find that just like you, people uh, start something to bring about a positive change in the world. And it may turn out that they build great enterprise value for themselves and for the other stakeholders. But that wasn't the reason why. And so what you're saying, I think, is, yeah, that that idea of bringing positive change in the world in certain domains, that has a lure. Mm, it does. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's power to that, to embracing 
Um, sometimes there's a commercial component that's needed to kind of drive the energy. Yeah. And I didn't see that in the earlier days. I was Can way more. Say more about that. Well, I think, you know, I, I think through design, philosophy, my background, I had very altruistic ideals as far as um, what I wanted to bring about. And um, that led me to believe I would get a PhD. And when I was in the process of doing that, I missed some of the energy and the urgency um, and the power of deadlines that are often driven by money. And um, it wasn't, I've never really worked towards money as right, a goal. Right. Um, but money in that way is a good catalyst for energy and, and time um, to kind of move things forward. And so I appreciate that, that that has, carries with it something that's sometimes necessary to bring about the, the impacts that we want right. is to deal with the economics. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, Mark, uh, some of the interviewees on Positive Enterprise Value have been uh, entrepreneurs in not-for-profit organizations mm -hmm. and some for-profit. And I'm struck by how it's so clear that to have an organization which makes a positive, meaningful change in the world, it takes things like mission, vision. It takes uh, your customer, however you define that, as having a, a receiving great value. Uh, it takes positive cash flow. It takes, in what in the for-profit world they call profit, in the not-for-profit world they call surplus. But we can't expand and do the next thing unless we have that cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm struck by how often we use different vocabulary, but it's the same stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about the last 10 to 15 years, and I'm thinking about you as a, an artist, a, a, a creative person with a canvas, uh, the stresses of um, a balancing a family and a growing business, and you're a giver, uh, and I see the challenges facing um, seasoned successful entrepreneurs as being like 90% psychological. Givers like you, uh, can get depleted hmm. and, and you could get depleted from your positive energy. How do you uh, replenish your positive energy? Humor. <laughs> I, just, I really think on, on a daily basis, business, things just get absurd at times. The, the deadlines, the challenges just feel impossible. And without a sense of levity, um, you know, especially with a team who's giving their all towards something. And it just feels absolutely it's absurd at times yes. to not acknowledge that absurdity and be able to have a sense of levity and joy in the midst of it. Uh, while you keep soldiering on, um, I think things can just get very heavy and people can just feel weighed down. So maintaining that buoyancy in the midst of that is actually one of the sweetest spots I, I find agree. Yeah. In, in creating that. It is just this absurd, let's just acknowledge it yeah. and move forward. Yeah, I think also that, that um, the people who have that capability to see the humor even in the depth of the of seriousness, that is incredible power, isn't it? That it they is. really, that's a great leadership power. Mm. I, I think it's, it's yeah, it's what's, Really, it's, it's very humbling at the same time because I think it, whenever a leader puts themselves in that position to be able to laugh at, at, at yourself or, or the organization and where you are, as Kelly used to say to us all the time when we'd be in the heart of trying to solve something, let's just acknowledge we're a bunch of schmucks on the bus right now. And that would just take us down a notch from our self-important kind of role of what right. we're trying to solve. 
So um, just on the theme a little bit more. So sometimes uh, entrepreneurs uh, like you or like me, um, when you start playing a deeper game, uh, you need to put some physical practices in, in place. And sometimes for some people that's uh, meditation or yoga or working out. Is there anything special that, that you do? I don't know if it's too special, but I, I'm certainly an active person. I love to bike in the summers and... Um, I can't keep up with my daughter from a running perspective anymore, but um, we love to hike and get out and spend days in, in nature. Um, I think that's a real recharge for us that I value very much. Um, I was a longtime meditator and um, yoga practitioner for a while. I lived in an ashram in my past life before I got involved with business, and I'm finding my way back to that, but right. I, I wish I could say that that was my guiding light and kind of grounded me on a daily basis, but that gave way. I gave way to that along the way. Oh, yeah. Um, but I do feel like the roots of that are something that have influenced me and in my own way I can draw from, um, just from a quieting the mind perspective. So you have a business which um, allows more and more people around the world to read and to explore reading. And you and I have talked about that the most uh, successful, however you define that, people we know are... are voracious, continuous readers. If you could give a recommendation to a couple of people who are listening, who are maybe like you, maybe they have a creative side, maybe they're hearing you can make a positive impact as an entrepreneur. So maybe they're college students. Mm -hmm. Do you have a couple of books that you would recommend to them that were helpful to you? Ken Wilber, super influential author for me. Um, I, I tend to be one that wants to understand what's going on in the world by understanding the broader historical context of where we've come from. Right. Um, I, I've been reluctant to accept the terms that are right in front of me or that our society is talking about without having some broader kind of perspective. So um, Ken Wilber, uh, we talked about Sapiens last night. Yes. So if you've read He's Sapiens. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That kind of broad brushstroke of the evolution of human consciousness that I, I feel like it, it gives me, it has given me a confidence to understand what my role is in this place and time because it contextualizes this trajectory that I'm a part of rather than just seeing myself as a modern in this moment who's yes. trying to do something. Um, I feel like I, I have more... Um, confidence in what I'm contributing and, and what that means in the broader trajectory. So that might not be your typical business recommendation, but uh, Ken Wilber has a lot of um, thinking. He integrates so many different disciplines and has a view of what an integral culture and business model can be. Um, not just business models, but uh, it's very broad reaching, very philosophical, but I, I found it incredibly powerful to draw from in understanding people and their priorities and worldview and how they might fit into this broader um, perspective and and how, as an organization, what we draw from to make our choices. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes uh, in the uh, busyness and in the intensity of the day-to-day, -day, we do lose the perspective that, you know, I think, for example, about, gee, we've been walking upright as homo sapiens, I think people would argue, for 200,000 years. And we were biologically evolved for that. Hmm. And we have been in our culture, our popular culture, maybe since the Industrial Revolution, 150 years. And maybe in your, your in my life, 50 years. And so it's no surprise to me that we have a culture that's filled with tension and 
uh, depression and uh, concerns when we think about we were not biologically evolved to live in the culture that we currently live in. Mm. And therein lies a lot of, of uh, tension, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Things we, we moved up the food chain rather quickly and we haven't left. <laughs> so many entrepreneurs who listen to this episode, Mark, think about what we've just been talking about for the past few minutes and think about your um, trajectory of your life and your career and, and the successful business and uh, the successful chapter that the business has recently come through and probably see you as a guy who's got lots of successes. In fact, maybe even nothing but successes in life. But has there been a life failure or disappointment that comes to mind that was instructive to you? You know, there was a time where working with my father felt like a life failure. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. Um, How did you resolve that? I think I resolved it by um, bringing more of myself to it and not feeling like uh, the, the child that in some way is, is rebelling or trying to uh, fight against a patriarch that um, has provided a lot of model in his own way, in his own time. Um, it's tricky though, isn't it? Because there's that parent-child relationship where someone was in charge for a period of time. Very true. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and how did you navigate that? Awkwardly. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I needed to make room for the fact that he, it was still his company and his, his pedagogy. And I pushed pretty hard. Um, and really the, my first phase was to help build out the best version of his vision. Um, and I, it reached a point where it was untenable for me to continue without bringing more of myself. Um, but for a while that felt like a, really a burn to be stepping into something that, that didn't meet my ideals and we weren't doing things in a way that I would have done them. Um, and ultimately had the chance to do that. But that was a tough and important learning because I don't think I would have built the will to, to really need to push through in, in my own way. So would that, would that have been in the years just prior to 2009? Yeah. 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 And so somehow you reached a culmination of that dialogue inside your own head. I did. Yeah. Getting to that place to commit. And what, I, was it kind of like, I'm going to go forward in a different structure or I'm not going to go forward at all? Yeah, it was. Yep. It was really, it was, it was my time to, to kind of fully take ownership for it or to walk away. And did you have that dialogue with your dad? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that was tough for him. You know, must I, have been, it, I was just going to say, it must have been tough for him too. I think it was. Um, you know, I, I think he was, he's an older guy and I think he was at a phase where he recognized that the company had not been successful um, prior to that and that we had brought about success and software was something that was not as familiar or comfortable to him. Um, he couldn't go to his precision lathe in the basement and, and solve a problem. It turns out we had to work with people. And um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that was awkward for him. And I think it's, it's been tough to find the right role for him to continue to have yeah. some yeah. meaningful contribution because culturally the imprint that I brought was very different from who we had been. Um, and I think that's something that he didn't really understand and probably still doesn't understand. What's he think about this latest chapter in the business? I think he um, is happy to hear that, that things continue to move forward and that we've got new energy. Um, I don't think he fully gets how massive this change is because I think this really uh, will allow the company and the kernel of his pedagogy to, to reach an audience at a scale that's far beyond what he had initially envisioned. Right. So that, if he thought of it that way, that should really be uh, delightful to him, right? Agreed. Yeah. 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 You're making me think about how 
it's tough for us to realize this when we're running our businesses. But what you've just described, how your grandfather and your dad ran the business at one point, you made a, you had a significant emotional event at some point and made a decision to commit to the business. And now here we are in 2019, you've recently made a decision to move the business on to different majority ownership. It, it strikes me as how like there are certain times of the life of a business where there's an ownership that matches what that business needs at that time. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And yet sometimes those of us who are going on to the next thing, there might be a sense of loss about the business. Almost, right. Right. Almost a sense of, of uh, leaving something. Yeah. Do you have any of that sense today? I feel like we kind of tried to intentionally create that along the way within ourselves of uh, looking back and reflecting on this was this phase for us. This was our pre-Memphis purchase yes. or uh, pre-AWS move. Yes. Um, and I think by acknowledging those milestones and those phases and naming them in some way, we were able to distance ourselves from some of the thought forms and the patterns that were associated with that phase of who we were. And so, um, you know, it's funny because when I introduced the idea of investment for staff, I, I showed all of our various milestones and talked about who we were through these phases. And how, talked how about, far back did you go? I think I went back as far as 2000. Uh, no, I might have gone back to 95. I might have gone back to the first imprint of uh, yeah. Windowless Warehouse in Long Island. Yeah. Um, moving forward of what were these chapters and talked about 2019 as being the beginning of a very important phase that will be a milestone in, in several years that we'll look back on. So it felt very natural to me, I think, to, to shed our skin and to intentionally seek to do so. And what will be your role uh, with the organization, if any, moving forward? I'm on the board, um, and I look forward to having uh, a voice in product strategy more than anything. Um, I think we've got a lot of smart business folks that I look forward to having around the table that I've, I've missed for years. Yeah. Um, on the product side, I think that's, that's my home base, is to think about uh, what, what will that continued trajectory look like. But you very uh, purposefully have given up the CEO role? Yes. How does that feel? Feels great. Great. <laughs> great. And it feels great partially because we found such a competent and I think similarly valued person to be the leader for the next phase. And so the fact that our team uh, embraces him so fully and, and I have as well is, feels like a, a job well done to me. I'm, I'm proud to have him uh, take us to the next step. Great. So as we're coming to the end of the questions that I have, um, I'm just wondering, some people would say, uh, in the end, sort of the meaning of some of our lives is centrally tied up with the work we do. Would you agree with that? Sure. So you're young. So the work you do is not yet complete. Absolutely not. Yeah. In this group of listeners, both the business owners and other listeners, I would say um, high achievement is uh, quite common. Hmm. But not all of them would describe themselves as fulfilled or content as people. Would you describe yourself as content? I describe myself as content but not satisfied. And then I, I don't want to miss the moment and appreciate the goodness that I have in my life. Um, but I'm typically have a yearning for the next of what to create and what can make things better. 
So um, I don't see dissatisfaction as something that disturbs my contentment, but I feel that friction is, is what keeps me interested and provokes me to, um, to look into things. Do you think you have more potential to unlock? I do. I do too. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pete. It was a pleasure.